What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Indirect Message. I hope you are all easing in to this chilly February well enough. It's been kind of a difficult winter over here. It's strange, but the isolation of the pandemic has only recently really started to affect my state of mind. I guess that makes me lucky in a sense, but I'm doing my best to hang on just a bit longer, and I hope you guys are as well. I thought that today's topic might help take some of the chill off. I'm at the point in my life where a lot of people around me are getting married, and I've been thinking a lot about marriage myself, more specifically about commitment and the question of how we can love our person or people well for a lifetime. In the past, I have usually called on psychology experts for relationship guidance, but today is a bit more philosophical, perhaps even a touch spiritual in the secular sense. Joining me today will be Susan Piver. She is the author of The Four Noble Truths of Love, Buddhist Wisdom for Modern Relationships. Susan has been practicing Buddhism for over 25 years. She's a meditation teacher, and she's an incredibly interesting person to chat with. Plus, she has the loveliest, calmest voice. <laughs> this episode is definitely a wind down. Listen. Now, as the title of the book suggests, Susan applies classic Buddhist texts to the challenges of modern relationships. I found several nuggets of wisdom in the texts, in her personal interpretation of them, and in the experiences that she shares. For months, I've kept coming back to these ideas, so I wanted to share it with you guys. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I wrote The Four Noble Truths of Love when I realized that Buddhism, an ancient 2,500-year-old philosophy, was more helpful than anything I had ever discovered when it came to my own relationship, my own love life, my own marriage. So I wanted to break it down. What is it? How, what does this ancient wisdom have to say that can help me in my very current modern relationship? And I was stunned to see that it was timeless, helpful, and unlike any other kind of relationshipy advice I, I had ever encountered before. So let's start at the top with the first noble truth. The first noble truth of love is that relationships are uncomfortable. They never stabilize. I don't know about you, but no one ever told me that. <laughs> it's a novel idea. I think we're sold a lot of ideas about what our relationships are supposed to look like, you know, the fantasy. Right. So you, you meet someone, you'll fall in love, it'll be awesome, you'll have some problems, you'll work them out, and then dot, dot, dot. Nobody really knows what happens then. <laughs> so I discovered that dot, dot, dot never happened. I loved my partner one day, and I couldn't stand him the next, and we got along for weeks and months, and then we could not get along for weeks and months, and nothing I did gave me the ability to predict what would happen. I could be really loving and he could not really care for me and I could be really grumpy and he could be really kind to me or vice versa. So I realized that 
at no point in any in a relationship is it ever stable like you're going to go on a blind date you don't even know the person and you're already like what if they don't like me what if they do like me what if all my you know past relationship mistakes i what if i commit them again and and then in a long-term relationship the discomfort looks really uh close to something called irritation <laughs> There's just a constant irritation in a long-term relationship. No one ever told me that either. Mm. But the little things that happen uh, throughout a day or a week or a lifetime together, there's this constant like rubbing up against each other. It doesn't mean that the relationship is bad. It just means that it, it's never stable. I was just sitting at my desk, this very desk, sobbing because my husband and I couldn't get along for months and there was no reason for us to not get along. Just whatever one person said, it really upset the other. And I was just crying, thinking, maybe it's over. And a I heard a voice in my head said, well, you could begin at the beginning. And at the beginning are Four Noble Truths. And that's when they, this all sort of rolled out in my mind. And I realized in that moment that it was never going to stabilize. And that this was the ride. And if that was the case, and there is no evidence to this very moment to the contrary, what would I do? How could I love when everything is changing around me? And that to me remains a very good question. The application of the truth and the first truth is about accepting that. It's about accepting the instability. Yeah, with one caveat. The, yeah, the essence of the first truth is recognizing that it, it's never gonna stabilize, now what? Mm -hmm. That's very helpful. Yeah. Because uh, with the caveat, however, is if you're in a relationship that involves problems that are about abuse or addiction, that where the instability and the discomfort come from things that are basically outside of your control and your partner's control, I just feel really, really, really conscious of wanting to say that because I don't want anyone to think, oh, some Buddhist lady said that. I should ride these waves of discomfort when there are definitely exceptions to the rule. Sure. Yeah, let's talk about the exceptions real quick. Is there um, sort of a rubric or a guideline that you can suggest to make the distinction between instability and sort of these just uncomfortable waves that are normal and a part of life and a part of relationships and where it crosses a line? At some point, you don't put up with that, right? <laughs> Yeah. How can we, I feel like that distinction is difficult to make sometimes. There's a lot of kind of gray area there. Absolutely. And I don't know the answer, except for to agree with you that it is, there is a lot of gray area. It is very personal. In terms of normal, quote unquote, problems, that can range from anything in my estimation, everybody has to figure this out for themselves, from you always throw your stuff on the floor and that bothers me. Two, I'm transgender and I'm going to be changing my gender orientation. Those are normal problems, in my estimation, problems. Those are things that don't speak to a lack of love or cruelty. But however, on the other end of the spectrum, outside of this range of normal, as I would describe it, are things that cause you intense pain. It, then that can range from anything from the person is physically abusive, in which case all bets are off, verbally abusive, not to be tolerated, or you know has some kind of anger problem. Uh, 
that's a that's where it gets a little gray. Uh, physical abuse and addiction to me those are okay. Well, nobody can fix that. We need to stop. Mm-hmm. Do you think there are some fundamental sort of personality differences or lifestyle differences that can't really be worked through by accepting instability in relationships? Mm. Yeah. Beyond any list of qualities or capabilities, like I want them to be funny and, you know, have a job or whatever it might be, uh, do they know how to love is really the only question that matters. That's a little bit extreme of a way of saying it, but does this person know how to love? That's really the question. Can you elaborate on what that means? Yeah. Uh, My partner does. I don't know how he got to know that, but he knows how to pay attention. He knows how to come back. He knows how to listen to me. He knows how to be himself and be a real ass, if I may say, and then recognize it and apologize. Uh, He wants to love and be loved. And relationships are really important to him. So he really is constantly drawing my attention to what, what is good for us. And I'm constantly drawing my attention to what is good for me hmm. and what is good for you. But he has got this whole us capability that I learned from him. Most people, when they say they want love, they don't really mean that, I have discovered. They mean they want to be safe. They want to be comfortable. They want someone to take care of them or to take care of someone. All of those things are really good and important, but I wouldn't call them love. Yeah, I recall a part of your book where you talked about it being about wanting to love someone else, like being in the more um, active role, I guess, the active pursuit of us and of what love feels like between us rather than what can you give to me in this relationship exactly yeah let's have a a transactional like you meet my needs i'll meet your needs oh you are dinging you a point because you didn't meet my needs now you're gonna have to work harder (laughs) so we do that yeah so some of the feminist communities that i'm a part of there's a lot of talk about needs and i think that's really important because we have to recognize you know if our relationships are meeting our needs but i do think Mm -hmm. sometimes it can veer into that territory where now we're kind of listing out our needs and comparing who's meeting what needs you know this sort of transactional and um sort of sanitized approach to happiness and fulfillment in a relationship i agree and You know, there's a need for women, especially to deconstruct their needs Mm -hmm. and be clear. I would never say otherwise, but that isn't love. Now, I wanted to talk about the Buddhist idea of three poisons, passion, aggression, and ignorance. Aggression and ignorance are more straightforward, but I think passion is an interesting one because at least in a Western understanding of passion, it's such a huge part of our cultural scripts about relationships. The three poisons are classical teachings in Buddhist philosophy, and they are called passion, aggression, and ignorance. And I get where passion can sound confusing because passion is good. You want to feel 
passion, you want to feel desire, you want to feel desired, and yeah. Uh, so that's it, it doesn't mean that kind of passion. It means it's a euphemism for grasping, holding on, like I need you to be this for me. And sometimes you do need, I do need you to be this for me, and that's that's a, that's that's not wrong, but. There comes a point in our relationships, especially our most intimate relationships, where we stop seeing the person and we start seeing who they are to us and what they can do for us. And that's where grasping or passion can become a poison because every time I choose who I think you should be over who you are, I am having a conversation with myself. It means holding on to the thing that you wish was true rather than acknowledging the thing that is true. And that's really different. Let's talk about the second noble truth of love. The first noble truth is relationships never stabilize. They're uncomfortable. And the second noble truth is thinking they should be stable and comfortable is actually the cause of much of the instability and discomfort because for whatever reason, our culture has said, given us a picture of relationships, short-term or long-term, that is without fault and perfect and perfected. And it's really hard to know what to do when that is not your reality, which it isn't. So instead of taking an interest in the problems, aside from abuse and addiction, that occur between you and another person as with some sense of inquisitiveness, what's happening here? We legislate guilty or innocent. We have problems, that means we're not right for each other, or you need to fix it, or I need to fix it. And yeah, sure, everybody needs to fix something. But the idea that the problems that happen between you and another person are an indication of a failure means that we're looking at our movie of what love is rather than love. And that movie is really damaging. By the time we're like 10, I don't know, really little, you have a movie in your head, this is what love is. And it's like you have a lens in the middle of your forehead, the movie's playing and wherever you look, it just projects. You know, whoever walks into your screen is cast in some role. Occasionally, if you're lucky, someone walks in that you cast them as your lover. And then, yay. But the more, the closer you get, the one, especially when the honeymoon starts to wear off, the more attention we pay to that movie and the less attention we pay to the person. And we tend to value the movie more than, than the person. The idea behind mindfulness, by the way, or meditation or spiritual practice in general, is to first notice that that movie is playing. That's really helpful and very eye-opening. And not you don't have to do anything. Just know, notice, be aware of yourself. And then the second bit after, the, which is possible upon the first step, but not without it, is to turn the projector off. And in some ways you could say that that is where love really begins. The result of such practices is not just mindfulness. That's only half of what happens in quote-unquote mindfulness meditation. 
The other half is called awareness. Awareness expands. And that's the part that really helps with love. Because it teaches you to have a more spacious mind and to see more clearly, which is different than mindfulness. 99% of the self-help books about love, I don't know if you ever noticed this. When I first realized, I was like, damn, how'd that happen? 99% of them are about how to get love how to attract it, how to get it to come back, how to become worthy of it, how to heal yourself so you can get it. And approximately 0% are about how to give love. I think that is so interesting. So I think that's where some of the problem is with the self-help love category is they're not really about love. Yeah. They're about getting something, not giving something. Getting is hugely important but there's a whole other side to the coin that most of us are never taught how to do. Yeah, and it's not even in that script, the cultural script. It's not in the media script, it's not in the self-help script. (laughs) So more conversation about that would be good. One of the aspects of this that I saw myself in is the projecting. And I like your little analogy of the little projector on your head and you're kind of, because that's exactly what happens, right? If you look underneath your projections, it's not just awareness of the of the tendency to have a to project or to notice how your projector works, but to develop some appreciation for what is underneath those longings, because that is good, that is beautiful, that is real and worthy of respect and care. So it's not something that you think oh, I should stop being that way. Right, yeah. Thanks for saying that. I think that's a really helpful framework. Okay, let's move on to truth number three. The third noble truth is that meeting the discomfort or instability together is love. So you think, well, I have my partner and we don't get along. Okay, a good partner is someone who will like turn to look at you and go, well, what's happening here? Let's talk about this. Uh, what did you do? What did I do? Oh, okay, that's helpful. That's good. It's really good. Yet a great partner, I would say, is one who, in addition to doing this, will sort of turn out to look with you at the arc of the ride that you're on right now and see it together. Now we can't get along. Now you love me, I don't really like you. Now it's the opposite. Now we don't understand each other. Now, oh my God, we love each other again. Someone who will actually sort of hold your hand, metaphorically, hold your gaze, metaphorically, and just go on the ride with you. That's great. That's a great partner. And uh, it's sort of saying, I have a partner in this experience of intimacy, not who sometimes meets my needs and sometimes doesn't, but is partnering with me on this incredible ride that is unpredictable, compassless, I don't know if that's a word, and uh, exhilarating and terrifying and boring and amazing and all the things. And are we doing it together? I, I remember when we, we got married, we had a wedding, and I uh, 
somebody, a friend of mine who had gotten married a few years before us said, oh, here's, here's the advice you need for your wedding. Uh, stay together. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, I mean, at the actual wedding, because otherwise you'll get married and then, you know, this, your partner will go talk to their friends and you'll talk to yours. And, and uh, then at the end of the day, you'll be like, how was the wedding for you? So just, just stay together. And that was, that was really good advice, and that was lasting advice. It, it applies throughout. I love the way you put that. I think that that is a really important part that is missing from how we look at our relationships. And look Agreed. at compatibility, too. Like, what is a compatible partner? It's not just, like, the job, the humor, and all this, but can we do this together. <laughs> exactly. You know? <laughs> oh, that's perfectly said. Yes. Can we do this together? Yeah. Does this person know how? Yeah. Or even if they don't know how, are they willing to figure it out with me? Yeah, exactly. That's really important. Yeah. So you talk about the importance of creating the right environment for this sort of um, togetherness and teamwork. Can you talk a little bit about the container principle? The container principle is, as I was taught, a, a Buddhist notion that, that says that the space in which something occurs informs the something, and the something informs the space. So it, it's like if we were having this conversation on a bus, it would be a different time in history, but you know it would feel different than the way we're having it now. And you're, you're the same, I'm the same, but the space is different, it changes things. So the, the, what I, this is, again, what I was taught as a... As a Buddhist practitioner, is the way to create environment that supports your spiritual endeavors, or in our case, our relational endeavors, begins with the things that sound very mundane. And the first one is to clean up your space. And it doesn't mean, you know, be a neat freak. It means care about your environment. Like your environment's beautiful. I love your background. Oh, thanks. It's really, really nice. <laughs> You're welcome. And it's uplifting to see it. When you care about the environment that you live in, not that, I mean, I'm not a neat freak and whatever, but it puts some heart into the space and you can feel it. You can feel it when you walk into someone's house, whether they're in a relationship or not, if they care about their things. So that's, that's the first way to create an environment. And of course, your home, usually, I mean, a lot of people don't live together, but Usually, that's the environment. It's the space you share together. And usually, you don't see the occupation of space in the same way. So there's some, some negotiation that needs to happen. But to care about your things. I mean, we live in a disposable world. If you try to put the brakes on that in your actual environment, it bears incredible fruit. Doesn't matter. Doesn't mean you have to have super expensive or fancy things. Just that you care about what you do have is weirdly powerful. Yeah, I think a lot of people are kind of coming to this notion um, because of Marie Kondo, kind of talking yeah. about being intentional with what you own. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there is sort of a growing awareness. I totally agree. I couldn't believe it when I watched her show on Netflix. I just, I sobbed like at every episode and I kept thinking, why am I crying? It was just so moving because it, it, it's so liberating when you care about your, about your things. It's very powerful. She's done us all a great service. The second 
thing is, you know, I'll just mention three, is uh, to wear nice clothes. <laughs> it doesn't mean sexy clothes or fancy clothes or beautiful clothes or new clothes. It just means things that you feel good in. <laughs> like, I happen to love this color. I love it too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I love the green you're wearing. So I feel happy when I put this on and it's clean. That, <laughs> that helps. And when you start losing a sense of sort of dignity in your person around yourself or your partner, it means something. It, it translates. And the last step is our least favorite <laughs> is to spend, <laughs> spend time in the natural world. <laughs> Well, that's my favorite one. <laughs> okay. But it's okay if you don't like the outdoors. Uh, last weekend, we we just went on a drive. It was like this classic New England thing. The leaves are turning. Oh, yes. We stopped at a farm stand that sold oh. pumpkins. I mean, it was Lovely. really, Lovely. it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. It was great. We bought vegetables from a farm stand where that was like the honor system. You just put money in a basket and... And it just felt so good to get out of this house where everybody is in their house. Everybody is in their house right now. And thank God, if we're lucky to have a house, yay. But there's something very expansive. I don't need to explain it. Anybody that's gone for a drive in the country or gotten away knows that it, it just shifts perspective. So that's the last, that's the fifth step. Yeah, I think it's important to feel small sometimes. Like, yeah, that can be a helpful perspective. Um, and like, so science about space does this for me too. If you don't want to get out of the house, just like reading about the whole universe around us kind of gives me that feeling too. Sometimes it puts my problems into perspective, and I think it's good to feel humbled about your tininess in this giant yeah. universe <laughs> that's lovely that's lovely it really is that's that sounds great to me <laughs> i appreciate that okay truth number four mm -hmm. let's tie it all together the fourth noble truth is there's a way to do it all because the first three noble truths are like oh, okay that sounds good buddhist lady but now what how how do you do it so the fourth noble truth says you can do it and there are certain qualities that you can employ that enable you to do the first three. And they're based on the spiritual journey, which doesn't matter really, but to me it does. And this, the whole spiritual journey, whether it's a journey of love or enlightenment or transformation of any kind, it always starts by creating a foundation. That's the first step. Then your heart opens. That's the second step. And then you let go. That's the third step. So that's what I was taught. That's what I practiced. So how does that work in relationships? What are the foundational qualities without which you're not in a relationship? You may be in a great love affair, but not a relationship. So the first is honesty. I know, you know, that's a tired trope in a sense, but it's very hard to be honest because it requires that you know the truth of your own heart, which is always changing. So if you're with someone who can't be honest, whether because they don't know the truth or because they just choose not to, again, you can have a great affair, but not a relationship. And the second foundational quality is 
good manners, which doesn't mean, you know, you know which fork to use. It means you think about the other. All good manners are based on thinking of the other person and what they may need. doesn't mean you have to always do what they need, but if you think about the other person and imagine well, how are they going to feel if this happens? Or are they tired? Or are they hungry? Or let me be concerned with their existence. That's pretty foundational. If you're with someone who will not think about you, again, you can have some kind of awesome love affair, but not a relationship. So those are the foundational qualities. And then the second phase of the journey, which naturally happens, is your heart opens. Because if you're with someone, oh, they can be honest. Oh, they're thinking of me. My heart can relax. Otherwise, it can't. And so when your heart relaxes, you stand the chance of thinking about your partner as having equal importance to yourself in the relationship. Because often, it's like you're more important or I'm more important. But this idea of we are equally important is strangely difficult to achieve. And then the third phase, the sort of letting go part, the fruitional piece of the journey, is to realize that in spiritual practice, you try to take everything that comes your way as a way of deepening your practice, good, bad, ugly, whatever it is. In love, you could try to take everything that comes your way, good, bad, ugly, except abuse or addiction, and view it as a way not to get more love, but to get more intimacy because love always has comes and goes, begins and ends. Intimacy has no end. And it can always deepen. And when I realized that, that gave me a lot of heart. Oh, I, that's something that can last a lifetime. Because love, I know, uh, sometimes I feel it, sometimes I don't. But can I know you more? Can I show you more? The answer to that is always yes. All right. Thanks so much for joining, guys. I hope you found something useful in there for your life and current or future relationships. Take care of yourselves, and I'll see you next time.